I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, a political podcast that asks whether it's really all over for the Tories and whether Labour are on track to win and what needs to happen to change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. Figures released last week show that net migration levels to the UK are at record levels. Today we're joined by the former Labour Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, and the political scientist, Madeleine Sumption, to assess what it means practically and politically. So, Aisha, what have you been up to this week? Well, I was lucky enough to sit in on a focus group uh, which was being run by the New Britain Project, and it was up in Scotland. In fact, it was literally the motherland for me. It was where I was born and brought up, uh, Coatbridge and Bells Hill in Lanarkshire. And it was really interesting because a bit like the focus group you sat in on, there's definitely quite a lot of despair and frustration about the state of things. But a lot of the people in the group I um, sat in on actually had quite a nuanced view. I mean, they took the view that things were definitely bad here, but they did put things in a global context. And they did say that they did recognise that lots of countries were going through a hard time at the moment with with inflation and and various other things. But I think my big takeaway was that there's a, a sense that their people are keen for a change, but they sort of don't quite believe that anybody can really make things any better. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the things are so broken that nobody can fix them. And that's kind of the problem that all opposition parties have at the moment is how do you uh, give the impression to people that, you know, you can do anything different when it just feels there's so much just despair. And it's not a problem that Blair and Brown had because they had this growing economy. They had there was still enough positivity around for people to believe that they could do something different. Yeah, I think that's the big problem, isn't it? How do you sell a hope uh, message when people just feel very, very cynical right now? Let's start with our stat of the week. We're focusing on immigration. And of course, immigration was heavily pitch rolled and the figures eventually came in and those figures were 606,000. That's the highest levels of net migration 
on record. Sam, were you surprised by the figure? Because there was quite a lot of pre-briefing saying that it was going to be around the million mark. Do you think that was deliberate? I've been wondering about this, actually, because the number came out lower than than most people had been expecting. And as a result, despite being a record level, felt like a bit of a damp squib. But the, the media didn't give it as much profile as perhaps we've been expecting to. The public certainly haven't don't seem to have reacted particularly strongly to it in terms of there's been no movement in any polls or anything like that. I was a bit nervous about how it would all land and, and the sort of circus that would ensue. But actually, there hasn't been too much noise about it. I agree. I thought the discussion was a bit calmer than I was anticipating. I think that is a good thing. Calm conversations around immigration is always um, better than the opposite. And when you look at the figures, I mean, you've got 1.2 million people coming. You also have 557,000 people leaving the UK, which is quite interesting. And of the 1.2 million who arrive, you've got over 925,000 non-EU nationals, 151 EU nationals and 88,000 were British. And of the non-EU nationals, you've got people essentially coming to study. You've got people coming on work visas, which are needed. And you've got people coming through humanitarian routes, particularly Hong Kong and Ukraine. And I think if you look at the numbers like that, there is an argument for why those people have come. Yes. I mean, I think that's probably why there wasn't the sort of um, furore one, one might have anticipated, was because actually when you look at it, it's quite hard to argue against any of the categories, or, or it's, at least there's a good reason for each of those categories. As you say, you know, we had about just under 200,000 Ukrainians. Well, no one, no political party, no no group is arguing that we shouldn't be supporting Ukrainians. There's huge public support for that. Uh, about 350,000 non-EU nationals came to study. Now, there is some debate about that, whether we make it too easy for people to stay after studying, whether we make it too easy for people to bring dependents. But really, you know, most people, certainly the government, it's their policy to encourage as many international students as possible because it's what's sustaining the higher education institutions in this country financially, and it's a major export industry for the country. And then the final category, as you say, about 200,000 work visas, of which half of them are for health and social care. And I actually think this has been a big change in the nature of the immigration debate. Like People know that the NHS would not survive at the moment without immigration. Half the doctors and nurses that joined the profession last year were from outside the EU. You know, when you look at it like that, there's, you know, there's, when there's solid reasons for each group, it's quite hard to generate much anger around it. And some people have argued, Jonathan Portes, for, for example, have argued that actually this shows that the new immigration system we've got is actually working in, in some ways because we are allowing the people in that we sort of want and need. And there's, there's sort of two conversations we have with immigration, Sam, isn't there? There's there's the immigration we just talked about and then there's the asylum and they're two different policy areas that often get conflated, often sort of deliberately so. Yes. So you've got economic immigration. And as you say, in many ways, that's been the big success of of Brexit is that by taking sort of full control of the immigration system, the government can choose to let in different groups, whether that's Ukrainians, whether that's people we need for the healthcare system, whether that's students. The debate there is just about, are they letting in too many people? What's the trade-off there? On asylum seekers, it's a very different situation. There has also been an increase in the number of asylum seekers, but that's not within the government's control. And they've reacted to that by increasingly punitive legislation and and the attempt to deport people to Rwanda, which is still going through the courts. But as you say, there's 
an enormous number of people stuck in processing, about 170,000 people now stuck in processing, which I'm pretty sure is the highest ever number. And that is really down to home office incompetence. It doesn't need to be anywhere near that high. We're processing far fewer people than we ever have before. And to me, that's because we've had a series of totally incompetent home secretaries who've taken their eye off the ball and have focused on a big headline, splashy policies like Rwanda and not the day-to-day of the job. And I think that's something I'm quite keen to ask Alan Johnson about when he comes on later is what's it like trying to run this the home office? Because it seems to require a lot of oversight to do the basics, let alone the more complicated stuff. And the other thing which you hear a lot from the government and it's the title of their bill, the Illegal Migration Bill. And a lot of people get very angry with that description. What are your thoughts on on the language of that, Sam? So my guess is that it's called the Illegal Migration Bill because the parliamentary drafters were having a bit of a joke of the fact that the bill is probably illegal. You know, It says on the face of the bill that it's actually probably goes against international law. But the government are very keen to call asylum seekers illegal immigrants to distinguish them from people who've come in on a visa. But it's a it's a sort of misleading term because they're eliding two different things. Their entry to the country is illegal, but the process of actually claiming asylum is not illegal. It's never illegal to claim asylum. That is a legal process in itself. So I never use the phrase illegal immigrant. I would always use the phrase asylum seeker because anyone is eligible to claim asylum if they can get here, even if they've come here via a route that isn't legal. Mm. So the Conservative Party have really made immigration, and particularly in their words, illegal immigration. They've sort of put that front and centre. Let's just look at what Labour have said about immigration. I mean, Labour's actually leading the Conservatives on immigration at the moment, which is Quite remarkable when you think of Labour's very tortured history with the issue of immigration. We will both remember that moment during the 2010 election campaign when Gordon Brown was campaigning in Rochdale and he got stopped by an older woman called Mrs Duffy who had a go at him about immigration. He then got into a car, his microphone was still on and he called her that bigoted woman and seemed to blame a woman called Sue for all of this happening. (laughs) So Gordon Brown got slammed for calling Mrs Duffy a bigoted woman. He then got equally slammed for doing a speech about 16 years ago or so saying British jobs for British workers. And he got told that he was now the racist. So Labour have had this very difficult relationship with immigration, Sam, have they not? Yes, it's certainly an area that has been very difficult for them. I was actually in Conservative Party headquarters on the day that the the Mrs Duffy incident happened. And I remember us all standing around those bank of screens that were there, everyone stopped working and all went to watch it on the screens. There was just a sort of sense that that was the day the election was won. I actually don't think that was true in retrospect. I don't think it had as much of an effect as it felt like at the time, but it felt like the moment of the election. I mean, you oh. were the, on the other side at that point, right? Uh, we, we were on the other side. I was in Labour HQ, gathered around a bank of screens <laughs> as well, just going, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And, and poor Sunai as well, getting the blame for it. But the worst thing was... Sunai is the most long-suffering age, Gordon Brown, right? <laughs> so. Sue, Sue, Sue. <laughs> 
But also the worst thing was, see, I think that was the moment actually we lost. I think there's often a moment in a short campaign where you just feel the, the mood change. And I remember a couple of days afterwards, the mood was absolutely funereal in Labour HQ. And we decided that we needed a relaunch because you always, if anyone's having a relaunch midway through their short campaign, they've pretty much <laughs> lost the general election. And, and Peter Mandelson and Gordon decided that there would, there would be some sort of relaunch. So they got all the sort of cabinet together. And as they were having the, the relaunch, there was a car crash that happened right beside them. I remember that, yes. <laughs> And, and we were watching that from Labour HQ and all you could hear was the sound of a car crashing. So just a doomed just as, campaign at that point. Just as Gordon was going, and the fight back starts here. There was just like, <laughs> kind of, and then the worst thing was as well, the moment that happened, guess who walked into Labour HQ for a sort of pep up the, the troops? None other than election winning Tony Blair. <laughs> just to remind everyone what they were missing. <laughs> it's like, this is what you could have won. Okay, going back to this point about immigration, I mean, you were there in in sort of the, the twenty fifteen campaign, and you know there was there was that again. You had the same sort of split on the Labour side between people who were furious at you all because you weren't being tough enough on immigration, and then people who were furious at you because you were being uh, you were sort of adopting the language of the right, and you had that mug that said we're going to control immigration, and there was a ridiculous sort of fuss about that. Now, how how did it feel being caught in that bind? Oh, it was awful. The, the The problem was we were trying to be all things to all people and immigration was such an issue. Everywhere we went, immigration was an issue. And I remember at the time, our anxiety being we didn't really know how to handle this. We didn't want to look like we were weak on immigration, but we didn't want to look like we were racist either. So we came up with a mug. We thought a bit of pottery would, would really sort of help <laughs> us kind of bridge that gap and I remember like going all around the country with various ministers and Ed Miliband and Harriet Harman and various other people and the immigration question would come up and I always remember we always had an economic answer for everything we didn't ever want to address any of the cultural conversations that were being had either and I think there's quite a lesson there for politics going forward particularly Labour politics I think if you just try and shut down conversations about immigration and say that it's all about the national minimum wage and it's that's all it is and there's no pressure on on infrastructure and th- there's no conversation to be had you you leave a vacuum into which something like UKIP comes in and they end up sort of shaping the debate. We had a great question from Colin Yeo who's uh, one of the leading experts in immigration in the country. We have a very knowledgeable base of listeners. Um, he said, does the government actually have an immigration policy? And if so, what is it? What are their success criteria and how are they measured? The same goes for Labour. And I think this is gets to the kind of trade-off, that, especially on, on how many visas you're going to grant, you know, the same time the government are pushing towards you know more having more students more people coming in to work on visas at the same time they're sort of indicating that they don't like this and want to bring the number down so it feels like labor in a bit of a similar position they're trying to have their cake and eat it again but we had a great question from simon franco he called it a dumb question i always find when people say dumb question that it's actually a really good question so what are the problems with controlled uh, immigration the liberal economic arguments um, from people like us i guess are usually simplistically in favor and high school workers are mostly unaffected by immigration there are popular stereotypes of the downsides but what are the real downsides i think that's something i i, I want to put to madeline as well Shivan had a, a great question as well which is how would Labour lower net migration and on illegal migration, what is Labour's alternative to the Rwanda policy? Loads of great questions uh, which will really help inform our discussion with our next two guests. 
So we've got two excellent guests to put all these questions to. We've got Alan Johnson, who was a Labour MP for 20 years, 1997 to 2017. And during Labour's time in government, Alan was the Secretary of State for Education and Skills, Secretary of State for Health and Home Secretary. Alan, welcome. Hi, Aisha. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be with you. I'm writing books now. Please mention that because my latest <laughs> novel's just come out. So, Alan is a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> writer. Go and buy all his books immediately. We also have Madeline Sumption, uh, who's the director of the Migration Observatory, a non-political research group at the University of Oxford and a leading expert on this topic. So absolutely delighted to have her with us. Hello, Madeline. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, so can we start with you and, and just ask you if you could help put up those ONS figures into context for us that came out last week and that showed this record level of migration. Can you help us understand the trade-off and what these sort of figures mean in terms of both the positive and negative effects? What would it mean for those people who say we should we should have fewer numbers, we, sh- we should be driving numbers down? What it would, would it mean in practice to do that? What would be the cost of doing that? Equally, if we're want to keep numbers this high or even increase them further, what would be the cost of doing that? Yeah, I mean, as you uh, say, there are always trade-offs. And I think um, one of the challenges is that sometimes there's a conversation about the numbers and what the numbers ought to be separate from the constituent parts of policy. And if you want to have a conversation about reducing numbers, then government policy doesn't really set an overall number. Government policy sets the criteria for people to come in in different routes. Now, I think if you look particularly at net migration, there's some reason to believe that the numbers are going to come down of their own accord anyway. If you look at Ukraine, we've already seen a big reduction in the number of of people coming in from Ukraine. The big peak was in the spring last year, and the numbers are are much lower now. So for 2023, obviously, depending on what happens with the war in Ukraine, it's reasonable to assume those numbers will be a lot lower. For international students, I think the reason that we may expect a lower net figure is because In the past, at least, typically the large majority have been temporary. They left after one to three years. And so what we expect is after there's been a big increase in immigration of students with a little bit of a lag, you see an increase in emigration and that should bring down the the net figures. In terms of the medium to longer term, if the government wanted to restrict migration, the main areas that are contributing to the numbers, you have international students, they contribute primarily in the short run rather than the long run, but policy measures do have an impact in the short run. So that's that's one area. The other area is, is skilled workers. The health and care sector has been the major driver of this. What I think is interesting uh, about this is that this is actually a labour market that the government controls in a way that is not the case in most private sector jobs. I'm sometimes a little bit sceptical of these suggestions that um, you know, there'd be no demand for immigration if we did really good training in this country. I think it's probably not as, as simple as that in most private sector jobs. In the NHS, um, it is very much the case that you know the government effective you know funds training places. It then sets the paying conditions in in the NHS, and so that is an area I think where there probably is a, a policy lever that would involve training and improving retention. But obviously, that comes at, at a cost, and I think the sort of uncomfortable reality is that the UK is is getting quite a good deal from health and care workers coming in at the moment. It could spend more money and reduce that demand. And I think there's a perfectly legitimate argument that reliance is too high on overseas health and, and care workers, but it, it's not obviously something that can be done for free. Alan, let's bring you into the conversation. What, what did you make of those figures that came out? Um, well, they were extremely high, but when you delve into it, you see the percentage, 19% from Ukraine and Hong Kong. That's to be applauded. 
you look at the health and social care workers coming over, and there's nothing wrong with that. This is a big political problem for the government because they vowed to reduce net migration to the tens of thousands. It was a vainglorious attempt to win votes on the back of suggesting that we were the party of open doors and they were the party of uh, closing those doors. So the party of open doors presided over a figure of net migration of around 200,000. Actually, when I was Home Secretary, it was 120,000. That was in the middle of the financial crash when no one wanted to come here. So I don't want to take particular applause for that. But given that the debate was so toxic, and given that we are still now in the Labour Party accused of having an open doors policy, here's the party that hasn't got an open doors policy presiding over yet another record level. Incidentally, the figure that sticks in my mind, and Madeline will remember this, was 333,000. Two weeks, the ONS figures came out, two weeks before the EU referendum. It's arguable that David Cameron's vainglorious attempt to get it down to the tens of thousands, which everyone knew was impossible, everyone who had any expertise at all in this, it's arguable that that cost him his premiership because it was certainly, I think, the biggest factor as to why people voted leave. Coming out at just that time, it was a gift to people like Nigel Farage. So, so um, yeah, it shouldn't be a big political issue. There is a political consensus. Immigration's been good for this country. It has to be controlled. The people who come here should contribute towards the economy, pay their taxes, obey the laws. Now, you leave out the far left and the far right from that conversation, but that's basically the consensus that exists on the centre ground, and that's where we ought to go. And these figures don't suggest, apart from the asylum applications. I mean, the ONS have only included asylum applications. They were never in there before when they were running at about 15,000. When I was Home Secretary, now they're up to 76,000. They've made the very sensible decision that because that means people are going to be taking three years, four years before their asylum claims looked at, that's included. So if you get the asylum applications down, you know that was eight percent of the uh, of the figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you do then you actually do affect the net migration policy. And Alan, just going back in your time in in the Labour Party, and I remember this well. I mean, immigration has always been a very very tortured topic for for the Labour Party because, as you say, there's lots of different kind of competing values. Um, Sam and I were discussing the the Mrs. Duffy incident famously with with Gordon Brown, which kind of symbolised this very difficult uh, relationship. Um, You know, Gordon Brown went on to say British jobs for British workers. He got, you know, attacked for that as well. Why has Labour found debating and discussing immigration in a way which is common sense, but humane and compassionate as well? Why has Labour found that so difficult, uh, particularly discussing cultural issues around immigration, not just economic issues? I don't know whether we have found it difficult. When we were in government, you know, we, not just me, Jackie Smith before me, John Reid before that, were having all these debates about this to try and address this point that we were scared to talk about it. I had a big meeting in Central Hall, Westminster, with Chris Hoon and Chris Grayling, who were my two opposite numbers. My immigration minister had meetings all around the country just to show we weren't frightened of this issue. I think our difficulty is it used to all be about the colour of people's skin. You know, let's, let's be frank about this. In the 60s, some disgraceful campaigns, including the Smethwick by-election, based on skin colour, 
it's not particularly like that anymore. Some of that toxicity has been taken out, but it's still difficult for Labour people to perhaps argue that there should be immigration controls when in their heart they see people coming across who they want to give refuge to. It's very much a left-of-centre thing. Uh, so so I think that causes the difficulties. But we didn't. I mean, we weren't frightened to talk about it. I mean, what I think we need to be talking about now is to get rid of this thing that is still a potent argument against us, that we are somehow in favour of open doors. If you ask nine out of ten people who introduced the points-based immigration system, they'll say it was the Tories. They might say Nigel Farage, not that he ever had much influence because he never got elected to Parliament. They won't say Labour under Jackie Smith in 2008. But we introduced the points-based system, and for years afterwards, people were saying we ought to introduce a points-based system. Well, we've got it. And in a sense, that also was part of a consensus that you needed to ensure that there was you know, the right level of skilled workers coming into this country. So I, 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 when I was looking up uh, your bio before we did this episode, I realised you became Home Secretary the day that the European elections were announced in 2009 when UKIP beat Labour, came second. That was the sort of first moment that UKIP became this big player on the national stage, which ultimately ended up with David Cameron calling the referendum. So, And what's odd, as you say, is the numbers were much lower then than they are now. What was it about that time about the way Labour approached the issue that allowed UKIP to generate so much political benefit out of that issue? I think going back to that consensus I talked about, immigration's been good for the country. Yes, people would nod. Needs to be controlled. Yes, they'll say. People who come here should make a contribution, pay their taxes, obey the law. Yes, they'd say. But it's not controlled from Europe. And that was a big, big issue that Nigel Farage and UKIP, they played that tune over and over again. And in a sense, they were right. There were several really terrible criminals who came into this country because the countries they were coming from didn't give us sufficient information. Otherwise, we could have stopped them coming in. But that was a weakness in our argument. It was a weakness that you can come in from 26 other countries and there's no controls whatsoever. The people who voted leave, if that was their main concern about immigration, they had a point on that, which is why we were trying to convince the EU to, you know, free movement was fine for six countries in 1958, not so good for 27 countries, um, but to no avail. But Alan, do you think, do, do you regret a Labour government not bringing in more controls on accession countries? Well, I do in hindsight, but it's easy to say in hindsight. I was there at the time. I was actually working pension secretary at the time. One of my two jobs you missed off there, I you probably. I'm very <laughs> sorry about no, that. You're probably doing stand up at the time. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, so you know, we had six hundred thousand vacancies. Ourselves, Sweden, and Ireland were the three countries uh, that said no accession country people can come in straight away. Because we needed them in the economy. And it was also a very good way to ensure that the new countries coming in, we had real influence with on the issues that mattered to us to get the kind of votes we needed in those happy days when we were still in the European Union. So I can't say that at a time it felt wrong at all. But the numbers were so out of kilter, something like five times the amount. That, again, was a gift to UKIP and was a a gift to those who tried to claim that we had an open door policy. So in that sense, yeah, I do regret it. 
And it feels like this control issue has moved on from being about EU immigration, where there is now control, to being about asylum seekers. And we have seen, again, the number of asylum seekers go up in recent years. And that's not an area uh, where the government has managed to demonstrate that it has control, thus small boats being such a symbolic issue for so many people as a, as a symbol of that of that loss of control. Madeline, perhaps you could just walk us through, you know, what, what has led to this big increase in numbers? It's not as if there weren't sort of horrible crises going on around the world before a few years ago. So why, why are numbers increasing so much now? It's a very good question. And I don't think that there is a single straightforward answer to it. I think initially it looked like it was in part the result of successful enforcement around the freight terminals in northern France, which effectively diverted people to other routes. But I think there is just a broader extent to which people have realized that this is a way of getting across the channel, that people thought that the channel was an impossible barrier. And now that so many people have done it successfully and industry has grown up around it, people realize that they can do it and it's very difficult to stop. I think that the challenging thing for the government, for any government who's dealing with this issue, is that there isn't a really simple solution to stop it from happening. If we look at research on you know, other contexts, there is, I think there is some evidence that you know, putting up sort of physical barriers to people moving can there's some evidence that that's effective that's particularly challenging in the in the channel context in the water because it's dangerous and so the government strategy has been based on this idea of of deterrence so that's if you shape what happens to people after they arrive then if that's unpleasant enough they'll no longer want to come and there are all sorts of problems with that partly just the fact that people don't often even understand what the policies are that will greet them on the other end similarly trying to reduce people's incentive to move by giving them safe and legal routes. We know that that can work. We don't have any Ukrainians crossing the channel, for example, because they have a safe and legal route, but it's a very big safe and legal route. And it's difficult to imagine any government doing that for all of the nationalities of people who might want to come to the UK. So I think the sort of uncomfortable situation is that the government just doesn't have a readily available and effective levers to, to change the situation. And it feels like they're going around in a kind of vicious cycle because they don't have those levers. They keep almost sort of trying to create more and more aggressive levers, giving the impression that they're about to do something about it. So we've seen the Rwanda deportation scheme, which is going through the courts at the moment, the new bill that they're trying to get through parliament that would make sort of everyone inadmissible in theory for asylum that's coming over on a boat. But in practice, deterrence doesn't seem to be working. So in a way, they're kind of making a rod for their own back by continually promising more and more aggressive action against something that, in fact, it's just really difficult to do anything about. Every country finds it difficult. It is very difficult. And actually, if you look at boat arrivals in parts of the EU, Italy, Spain, this is something that has just bumped along for years, you know, probably about 20 years now. And the numbers have, you know, they've gone up and down, but none of the strategies have really been able to eliminate it. So with that background, Alan, what does Labour do about this situation? I mean, Labour is actually doing better than the Conservatives at the moment in terms of when you ask the public, who do you think have got the the right policies? There's a real lack of trust in the Conservatives at the moment, partly because they have bigged this up so much. Having done that job, having been at the Home Office, what what's realistic for a new incoming Labour Home Secretary to, to promise on this, particularly on the asylum backlog. Well, I was, I was going to say, there's two completely different. Sam mentioned the fact about asylum seekers, what, 51,000 against this 1.2 million, you know, in numbers, it's very small. But as Sam alluded to, it's a visible 
example of the government completely losing control. That's why it's such a difficult political issue for them. What to do on that aspect, first of all, read Sir David Normanton's piece in Progress magazine from the beginning of April, I think it was. Sir David Normanton happened to be my home secretary when I was at the Home Office. But it was a terrific piece. It was also in the FT. And he talked about the need for quiet diplomacy and competent administration. So you can have all these sound bites, you know. It's quite humorous, isn't it? Because you see on the front page of various tabloids, pretty as was Suella now, they always use the Christian name, will get tough on this and tough on that. And you think, oh, it's a shame that woman's not the Home Secretary. And then you find she is the Home Secretary. It's almost like they're commentators on the sidelines with no power over this. So Rwanda, I mean, if Rwanda works, if it's legal, if it gets through, what, 200 will go to Rwanda? It's not even going to touch the figures. So quiet diplomacy and competent administration, how do we know that works? Because it's worked before. I mean, David Blunkett, didn't seek a Daily Express headline. He went across, talked to Sarkozy, who was then the interior minister. And this amazing thing happened in that the British border moved from Dover to Calais. You come through there, it's all Brits. So there was nothing vainglorious about that. It was a simple solution. If you look, if you remember, ships couldn't go around Africa without being, without pirates coming out. There was a famous Tom Hanks film about it. Disappeared. How did it disappear? cooperation between the EU, the United Nations, and the countries involved. So what should Labour do? First of all, it's that administrative point. There was a huge backlog of asylum seekers under us, by the way, in 1999. It was bad in 97, got worse by 99. By the time we left office, it was resolved. 80% were dealt with within six months. And there were lots of asylum seekers, lots more than there are now. You know, you need to get the... The, the right people in. You need to get the border force, the civil servants on border force, motivated. They're demoralized. They're underpaid. They're tri- they've been treated appallingly over the years. So that's an important aspect of it as well. I, I want to ask you about the Home Office because I think now in Whitehall it has this sort of reputation as being not fit for purpose. Not fit for purpose was a term first coined, I think, by your colleague John Reed about the Home Office. How did you find it compared to the other departments that you led? And do you think it sort of got worse uh, uh, over the last sort of 10 years? What would you do if you were the Home Secretary now to kind of rebuild it? I wouldn't blame the civil service at all for this. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a cop out to blame the civil service. There's probably fewer of them now. Police numbers were cut by 20%. There was a lot of cuts to border force staff as well. So there's all that bit, the age of austerity, that has damaged things. But you can get competency back in to turn those asylum seekers around. I think it's very interesting what Keir Starmer's hit upon is a closer link between the Migration Advisory Committee's shortage skills list and doing something about it. There are jobs on that list that were there when I was Home Secretary, and that was years ago. Is there a real concerted effort that involves the education sector, that involves the skills people, that involves employers in getting those figures down? I don't think there's very much. What are we doing about tackling that so indigenously? I mean, on, on that point, I think that's a very noble and worthwhile pursuit for any government. Many governments have have talked about this, you know, how do you really target, you know, young people, not just young people, older people back into the workplace, but that takes time. 
And all the businesses, you know, I've been speaking to recently, and I interviewed Keir Starmer at the British Chambers of Commerce, they've got shortages that do need to be filled now. And Alan, one of the things I suppose I wanted to ask you is, given that one of Keir Starmer's missions is to get growth, and the OBR says that we have to have immigration to get growth, and Keir Starmer also wants to get immigration down, how does Labour balance those two things? Well, it's for any political party, it's the same. If, you, if you're in that decent majority in the centre there, you've got to balance those things. And you need to use migrant. Of course, you need to use immigration, uh, which you're in control of, to fill those skills gaps. But you can't, those skills gaps shouldn't be there 13 years later with nothing obviously happening that, that I can see to fill them. There's also a need to just ensure that people understand the birth rate in this country has gone down, has been going down. You know, the so-called replacement rate, one person being born for every person that died, it was 50 years ago when we went below one-to-one. 50 years ago, 1973. So ever since then, the replacement rate has been below one-to-one. Well, there's one factor that actually people need to understand if they're saying, well, immigration's that we we actually would be able to get net migration down to tens of thousands. That's one of the reasons why we won't. The other uh, reason, of course, is a dependency ratio. You know, there was something like 15 workers for every person retired when Lloyd George introduced the first national insurance pension scheme. It was down to four when I was Home Secretary and predicted to go down to two. I don't think it quite has. Madeline will know. Well, you don't hear about the dependency ratio anymore. I'm not sure where it is, but it won't be much different to to when we left office, you know, that given that we have a taxation system where the taxes of people working today pay the pensions of the people who are retired today, it's crucial that people understand if they want a successful, you know, retirement and they when they eventually get to it, when they're about 97, uh, and they <laughs> want the country to continue to function, you need to look at that dependency ratio. And that is another argument why you need younger immigrant labor coming into this country. Why it's such a good thing for this country. So and there is that element to it without being complacent about the figures, because this is far too high as a net migration figure. But I suppose that the question, and, we, and this is a question that came in for quite a few, a few of our listeners, is it too high? And given what Madeline said about the fact that, you know, the Ukraine situation will settle down, the, the Hong Kong numbers will, will go down, should labor not tie itself to reducing it and say, look, we're not going to give a number because that's a hostage to fortune and ramps up false expectations. We're just going to be honest that we will just look at things on a year by year basis and we will let in the people that we need year on year. We're not going to tie ourselves to higher or lower. We're going to do what's right for the country. Yeah, I think, but I think that's what they are saying, aren't they? I've not heard anything different to that, particularly putting a figure on it which America tried to do under George W. Bush and abandoned it very quickly. So Labour would be stupid to go down that line. But you're bound to be worried when students' dependents double in a year. I mean, that would be – if I was sitting down as Home Secretary, I'd be homing in on that, saying, what's what's happening here? There's something here. It can't go from 40,000 to 80,000. So the suspicion would be that you know, there's something wrong there. You've actually got this incredible statistic I always found that the number of uh, student dependents, which incidentally is only partner and child, I think people get it in their imaginations, it's grandmothers and uncles, and but it's only those two. But they look at that, 8%. Where's well, another 8%? Brits returning back 
to their own country. They're British. They've always been British citizens. It's included in the net, rather bizarrely, in the net migration figures. Now, can I throw in one other thing that will get you all, you know, tearing your hair out or something? But if I, you go, I was going to say to Kia, you need something radical in there. How about the introduction of an ID card? I knew it. I knew it was coming. How, how about an identity card system? Because, you know, why do illegal migrants come here? Why did the Albanians hope that in the period while their asylum was being being assessed, they could slip into the workforce and vanish? Because you can only do that in this country. You know, we are now, apart from Ireland, used to be Germany when we introduced ID cards. Now they've got it. We're the only country in Europe that doesn't have an ID card system. See, my, my view on this is that actually it would be, the public would be absolutely fine with it. It's, it's There's a real angst in Westminster about ID cards. The public are like really quite happy with it, as far as I can see from any polling that's been on it. So it's sort of strange that no party has really jumped on, on it. It feels like something that um, either party could have taken forward, but there's sort of opposition within the parties rather than within mm. the public. No, no, well, we it, introduced it. It was law. It was Theresa May that, uh, yeah. you know, that, that abandoned it. The other two questions, Alan, that have come up from our listeners that I wanted to put to you now, just to flag up to everybody, we did cover Brexit extensively in episode two. We did a brilliant show with Stella Creasy and Anna Menon from UK in a Changing Europe. But Alan, lots of our um, listeners have said, Ask Alan Johnson about rejoining the EU and freedom of movement. Surely Labour must be pro-immigration. If you want these great skills, there they are on our doorstep. What do you say? Uh, no, I think Keir's quite right not to not to raise it. And I understand. Look, um, we've been through one kind of dreamland where a large chunk of the party was looking for a second referendum. And the second referendum would be a people's referendum, as if the first referendum was, I don't know, androids. I mean, it was crazy. It was great. My dear friend Peter Mandelson has admitted to me privately it was the wrong thing to do. He had on the table Theresa May's deal, which was about as soft a Brexit as you could get. If we'd have helped her get that through, it would have been murder on the on the Tory benches. So so Labour Labour should have backed Theresa. Labour should have backed Theresa May should have backed that deal. A few brave MPs like Caroline Flint did and didn't make any difference. Poor old Caroline got lost her seat uh, in 2019. But why didn't we do that? Because we have, well, uh, second referendum, second referendum. Now we've got this dream that we can actually go back into the European Union and we can be part of free movement again. It's not going to happen. Listen, you know, there's no one more enthusiastic about European Union than me. I led the Labour campaign. Realpolitik is what Keir Starmer is dealing with. And Realpolitik says you don't go anywhere near anything that looks like you're saying to the British public you made the wrong decision. And us very clever people who are much cleverer than you and have looked at all the information are going to reverse your decision. Let's get this right off the table and keep it off the table. There is going to be no reapplication to join the European Union. But before we start recording another Brexit episode, which I fear may happen if we don't divert back to immigration, um, I want to ask Madeline about some of the solutions. Alan threw out sort of a few different things there, training more, more Brits to do some of these jobs on the kind of legal visa migration side, maybe ID cards to stop asylum seekers who might not perhaps want genuine asylum. What do you think are the realistic policy options here for, for a Labour government, for any government in the future? 
I'm slightly sceptical that ID cards would make a big difference. We already have sort of an ID card system without the actual card, if you see what I mean, and that employers have to check people's right to work, landlords have to check people's right to rent. And so it's not clear to me that the physical card makes all the difference. On training, I think sometimes the efforts to link skills and immigration policy, I think it's an appealing idea. They sometimes end up being a little bit symbolic. So you end up having something like the immigration skills charge when the idea was, well, these employers are bringing in workers, so they should pay a fee and that fee will go towards training the workers. But in practice, the money is you know, too small and it doesn't go to the right places to make it work. I'm sure there are big problems with skills in training in the UK and, and that should probably be dealt with on its own merits because it will improve outcomes for Brits and not as a sort of branch of, of immigration policy. But to answer your question about what could be done, I mean, obviously, it all depends on on what your objectives are. If a new government wanted to make immigration policy more restrictive on the work side, there are any number of liberalisations that could be reversed. For example, middle skilled people raising salary thresholds, um, dealing with the, the domestic problems in, in health and social care. And ultimately, it all comes down to the trade-offs, I think. And those policies are there for a reason. They could be reversed as well. It, it's, I don't think there's ever any single right answer to how these things should be done. Alan? I was really interested in Madeleine's answer there. She's probably right on all of that, except on ID cards. Just to return to my hobby horse there, the evidence is that actually employers don't check that much. And if you Okay, can I just jump in on this point then? Because one of the things about employers checking and stuff is that what many people felt was that that did lead to what's known as the hostile environment, which led to the Windrush scandal. And there are lots of people who still are very scarred by that, particularly people from the Black and Asian community. Labour still has to sort of appeal to those people, not just from a transactional point of view, but that was wrong what happened with those kind of scandals. And people did Windrush feel... Windrush had nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Windrush was people who were probably entitled to be here and had been here for many Decades. People do um, feel it was linked to that hostile environment that a lot of people do feel very nervous about as well. Yeah, well, I, I, what you need to do is not a hostile environment, but, you know, let's have, you know, we're an island nation. We've got borders. We're not part of Schengen. So we can do that effectively and efficiently, as we did. Madeline, what is going on with processing? Because when I, when I look at the numbers, it seems to have slowed down a lot in the numbers that they're able to process, and therefore this backlog has gone up, which is actually, I think, what's upsetting a lot of people. You know, you look at local upset about people being in, in hotels and so on. That's happening because there's this, just this huge number of people who aren't allowed to work who haven't been processed yet. Why is the Home Office getting or appeared to be getting so much worse at, uh, at getting through these numbers? It's a really good question. I mean, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right that the backlog is a problem regardless of your political perspective. The reasons for it, I think, are really tricky. I mean, at the core, the number of decisions per caseworker has gone down a lot. I don't think it's necessarily a problem that you can just solve by throwing more and more caseworkers at, at the problem. It's possible that the cases have become somewhat more complex. We have quite a high share of people coming to the UK from countries where people do tend to get asylum. And it's actually also possible that the decisions are higher quality than they were before. The caseworkers have much more information that they need to churn through now, and the quality of that information has apparently gone up. And so that could be one one reason. We've seen this sort of slowing down in decision making. It's not exactly the same time frame, but it does roughly line up with this period when actually the grant rate has been increasing. 
is is an amnesty a viable? Because we've we've never had a sort of formal amnesty, but we've sort of kind of had times when pressure has been such that people have made decisions on people who are very likely to get asylum very quickly. Is there a way we could sort of speed up by doing that? Yes. I mean, I think you have to distinguish um, here. So an amnesty would effectively be granting people status um, regardless of whether you think the claim is likely to succeed. Ireland, actually, interestingly, last year did exactly that for people who'd been waiting for an asylum decision for at least two years. But uh, the other approach is effectively granting people status if they come from a country, if they're confirmed to be a national of a country that has a very high grant rate. Now, that is sort of what it looked like the government was announcing when it said it would fast track people through the system. And I was expecting when they made that announcement that then they would have something that was very light touch, effectively saying, you know, are you from Afghanistan? Do you pass the criminal record checks? If yes, then a grant of asylum. It actually looks like the process is sort of less fast tracked than had been implied, and that there's. They still seem to have a... got themselves into a total muddle over it with this incredibly long, complicated form that people can't fill in. It seems to have made almost things almost worse rather than better. There, there have been a lot of complaints about the form. I think at this stage, it's we don't have any data yet, really. To, I think we will hopefully soon start to get a sense of okay, well, what's happened to people who've gone through this process. Have the decisions been any quicker? Have they been positive or negative? All we have is, I think quite a few complaints, particularly from immigration lawyers within the sector saying, wait, you promised something simplified and that just seems rather complicated. And so, Alan, I want to sort of come in on the raw politics of this. Do you think there's any world in which the Tories can weaponize, you know, small boots, illegal asylum, Rwanda, the blob, lefty lawyers, Labour, open doors? Do you think there's any way that they can actually gain political leverage with that, given that stopping the boots is the number two priority for many people who voted Conservative in 2019, those red wallers that Labour wants to win back. Is there any political I mean, they're, advantage they're having to for defend the a record. in all you know, this? 13 years in government is a long time for a party that said it was going to get net migration down to the tens of thousands and is actually sitting on the highest levels we've ever seen in this country. Labour has to hammer that and hammer that and hammer that. It's Punch and Judy stuff, but it's proper politics here. And so given that record, I can't see how they can weaponize this now. So we're reaching the end of the program. Thank you very much for that fascinating conversation. Um, but before we go, there's one last question that we we always ask our guests at the end of the program, which I think it'd probably be easier for Alan to answer than Madeline. Is Labour passing the power test on this issue? Are they in the right place? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought it would be easy for you to answer. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to stay well away from the question about the politics there. The <laughs> so, Sam, that was um, a very meaty conversation. I mean, a huge, huge topic. I mean, my, my kind of general takeaway from that is that I mean, it was interesting that, you know, Alan is obviously very signed up to where the Labour Party is on on this. Where I think I'm slightly different from him is I think Labour's got to be, yes, be very clear about controlled immigration. But I think Labour's, my view, has got to not be frightened of making a big, bold argument for the benefits of controlled immigration. And it was interesting hearing Alan kind of give us and I, I suspect this will be a theme as we pick through thorny topics for Labour. Often the solution from Labour people, we had this with Brexit, we had it with the economy, is that 
we're kind of better, nicer people and cooperation is going to be the thing that gets us over the line on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I think that as with those topics, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that. But again, you have this sort of sense that there is almost a fear of the electorate, if we're going to be totally honest. I think, and this applies to both parties, not just Labour. It goes back to Colin's question that we talked about at the beginning of the show, this sense of what is actually the policy here? Because on one hand, both parties know full well that there are economic benefits of migration that migration is just a necessity in a country which, as Alan said, we're not we're not producing a new population at the replacement rate. And yet at the same time, they don't want to talk about those benefits. They want to talk about more and more control and, and to keep emphasising the control message, which sort of then unbalances the whole conversation. I mean, I was quite interested in, in the fact that, you know, when Alan was, was Home Secretary, the numbers were far lower than they are now. UKIP were doing much better. And I'm still sort of wondering about how much the sort of control issue was really what was bothering people and how much actually attitudes have changed over 13, 14 years, regardless of the control issue. Um, you know, in, in many areas, the population has become more liberal. I certainly wouldn't imagine that they're, that the majority of people are, are sort of comfortable yet with immigration, but there has been a shift of attitude. And that's not really reflected in this very fearful debate that we have about the topic. I think it's a bit like the conversation we had last week with Jim O'Neill and the the question, a, a brilliant question from one of our listeners, you know, how much is too much borrowing? You know, how much is too much immigration? I mean, sometimes there's not a precise answer to that, to that question. And I do think Labour's got to not be so scared of its past and not be scared of its shadow on this. I absolutely agree with what Alan said. I think the control element is incredibly important. But I think Labour could actually look quite kind of courageous and will look quite fresh if they're prepared to be make a strong choice and say, yes, we're going to try and make the controls on immigration more practical and work better and have more cooperation. But we are, for the first time in a long time, also going to bang the drum positively for immigration. Again, it's not a dirty, it's not a bad word. They're in a stronger position than they realise, I think. Um, you know, as, you, as you said earlier, they're ahead on immigration in the polls, which is which is that's never happened before, never. Even when you know Tony Blair was leading the general polls by miles, Labour wasn't leading on the issue of immigration, and that, I think that's less because people are sort of thrilled with Labour's immigration policy, and more because, as Adam was saying, the Tories have just broken so many promises on this over so long that they don't have any credibility anymore. So when they, you know, very clearly, they're hoping to use immigration as part of their election campaign. But they don't really have any credibility on it anymore. Alan was talking about that sort of ridiculous tens of thousand promise that David Cameron made. I actually went to an event that where Gus O'Donnell was speaking, uh, who was cabinet secretary when Cameron was, during that transition when Brown was prime minister and then when Cameron was prime minister. And he said he had his pre-transition meeting with David Cameron before he became prime minister. And Cameron, and he sort of said, you know, we're really worried that you've made this pledge about going to tens of thousands because we, don't, we really don't think it's deliverable. And Cameron said to him, oh, don't worry, it's just an announcement. And it's like an extraordinarily sort of blasé attitude towards something which, you know, a lot of people had invested a lot of hope in because it was a big issue for them. And and so I think, you know, with that kind of attitude, they see it as an announcement, something to sound tough on, but not actually to do anything about. It's a great opportunity for Labour to, yeah, not completely go overboard, but to sort of take the leadership on the issue, which they just seem a bit fearful of doing. 
I think they need to take back control. They need to, to take back freeze. control of the argument. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's that. So I'm I'm not I'm not yet happy that Labour are passing the power test on this one because I do think there's a there's an opportunity for a bit more of a balanced message that they're they're a bit too scared to take them. And there was one other point actually. I was thinking listening to Aaron. I didn't agree with everything he said, but you know, just listening to him, I often look you know look back at that Blair era cabinet and you think they had so many people who just sounded like incredibly experienced, impressive politicians who you'd be quite happy to put on a TV show. It, it doesn't feel like the front bench has has people like Alan anymore, not to the same level anyway. Let's be honest, part of that is because he's not in those jobs anymore. Like mm-hmm. people who are not in yes. politics suddenly have huge, vast better, amounts. Yeah, yeah. They have huge amounts of charisma and wisdom and sort of mm-hmm. courage when they speak. <laughs> but I think what he's got that I don't see from, from the Labour front bench when it comes to immigration and other topics is confidence. You know, he was so confident saying, look, I think there is a consensus. Immigration is good, but it's got to be sort of controlled. I feel like that confidence isn't quite there with with the Labour team yet. But I, I'm i probably a little bit more charitable than you are. I think they are. I think they have, given that I've got the scars on my back from that time where we handled immigration really, really poorly, we didn't show leadership in, in my view. We, we were too scared of everybody. I think Labour has made huge advancements, but I think they've got to be more courageous now and have more confidence. On that note, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, Get in touch with your comments on questions or anything discussed. We used your questions a lot today in in forming the episode. So please do keep giving us those. They are incredibly useful for us. You can tweet us at The Paratest or directly to me and Sam. Uh, You can email us on pod at theparatest.co.uk. And of course, you can subscribe to our Substack and become a founding member, which gets you access to add free episodes before anyone else. Do subscribe, rate and review us wherever you're listening and join us next time when we'll be turning our attention to the housing crisis. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.